So thanks so much for joining. Welcome. And uh, this is Dharma Ponce, New York. And I'm Josh. I've been, I'm a Buddhist pastor. And um, we have this the first Tuesday of every month. And uh, to do that, <coughs> one of my requirements with finding a space is that the space not demand any specific amount of money so that everybody can attend no matter what your financial status is. That said, if we could ask for $10 per person, but again, if you cannot afford that, don't worry about it. Give what you can. If you can't give anything, don't worry. Uh, we want you more than your money. And But if you can give $10 or more of that, pays for the space and uh, any more also is goes in my pocket frankly that's I do everything by donation teach and counseling so um the Venmo is Dharma punks with an X NYC generally we have a um one of those barcodes or QR codes I should say that you can scan but didn't have it tonight but it's just the name of the place you went to Dharma Punks with an X NYC so uh, if you want to give by Venmo and there's more um, information on the website dharmapunksnyc.com so uh, on every morning, Mondays and Fridays at 8 a.m., if you'd like to join our morning meditations with Kathy, Kathy teaches daily pause, and um, it's just a great way to start your practice. And also Kathy, like me, we both work as counselors, Kathy somatic. Thank you for being here. And um, so the schedule is I'm going to give a talk, then we're going to do a meditation, which is going to employ some of the tools and themes in the talk, and then there'll be time for any questions. And it doesn't have to be questions on the talk. You could ask anything you want. There are times in all childhoods, to varying degrees, where stress occurs in family systems and our families. Often it might be stress between parents, stress that's due to financial downturns, loss of work, a parent that is going through an emotionally challenging time. There can be stresses due to world events. We just went through a pandemic and now there's a war in the Middle East. So there's periods where world events can have enormous impact on families as well. And during these times, caregivers, no matter how well-intentioned uh, and the family environment might fail to provide what I will call the foundations of secure attachment. Well, what the hell does that mean? Secure attachment is a need we all have from cradle to birth. We need, as human beings, we are a social species that needs to have other individuals available to regulate our nervous systems. Human beings do not regulate their nervous systems alone. In fact, in solitary confinement, we very quickly, the technical term is lose our shit pretty quickly. So to regulate nervous systems, we need events to occur between us and other people. We need basically four things throughout our life to regulate our nervous system, to help us process emotions, to help us 
restore ourselves back to exploratory behaviors where we will be willing to develop new tools and pursue opportunities. So those four things we need from cradle to grave, as Bowlby said, was one, we need reliable, available attention from another human being, someone who will stop and simply be there and be proximal while we are, whatever we're going through, the feeling that we're not alone. Our species developed safety in numbers and it's deeply embedded in us. Uh, That's how we survived. Our species didn't have shells or fangs or wings. We had the ability to bond in communities to survive. Another thing we need is someone who expresses empathetic interest in our internal states. That's simply someone who, while we're, uh, who's interested in how we feel, not just in how we perform, not just in us being pleasing or convenient, but somebody who really cares about what is going on internally. From the earliest age, children signal their internal states and needs through affect, not through words, but through emotional displays. And the child needs, first and foremost, more than, you know, the the needs being immediately met, a caregiver that signals that, um, like a mother or a father, who signals they understand what the infant is expressing. The third thing we need is a soothing demeanor. So if we're upset, frightened, angry, someone who can listen, uh, naturalize, normalize, reassure us. Maybe it might be someone who through their tone of voice or a gentle touch restores us to a state of what's called homeostasis in our nervous system. And finally, we need what's called, my favorite of our needs is express delight. That's a clinical term that really simply describes someone who smiles when you walk into a room, someone who exhibits a sense of joy when you've accomplished something, someone who appreciates your acquisition of skills. So those are the four cornerstones of secure, reliable attachment that allows us to regulate our nervous systems. And when our needs aren't reliably met, When we express emotions, fear, guilt, frustration, loneliness, emptiness, and and no one is there to respond, to pay attention, to normalize, over time, these emotions are no longer integrated into our self-structure. We start to feel there's something wrong with them. And we start to even feel shame, what's called core shame, about having these feelings these needs, and they get what is called compartmentalized, shoved out of awareness. And the way we do this is through trial and error, we develop what some people call uh, parts or maladaptive or core, uh, I'm sorry, um, coping strategies or survival routines. We develop these behaviors that are there simply to get attention from our caregivers and restore some of the foundations that we need to feel safe. We do things that stop them from disregarding us, feeling put out by us, feeling there's something that's more important, or ways simply to manage our 
uh, our nervous system so that we don't feel this sense of shame, loneliness, emptiness, the sense there's something unlovable about me. So there's quite a list of these different routines that we develop depending upon which, uh, whether you follow the Buddhist teachings or whether you're interested in internal family systems or schema therapy or motion focused therapies or gestalt or whatever. But in general, I'm gonna list like five and this is totally arbitrary. And you may not uh, uh, identify with any of these, but hopefully one of these will nail one of your survival strategies. Um, there's the routine where we deny our needs, we shut down, we keep a stiff upper lip, we act as if everything's okay. And this is sometimes known as the passive pa pessimist, the person who just gives up and just acts as if everything's okay because they've kind of, uh, they don't feel anything they say or do. And that's the way they learn to eventually regain some kind of positive demeanor from the caregiver. Another way is to become exceedingly self-reliant, to stop going to caregivers for needs, to develop tools ourselves to regulate our nervous systems alone without relying on others. At first, it might start with uh, a child who feeds itself, learns to develop new skills by itself. When it's alone and it feels frightened or scared, it turns on television or goes to something that's self-stimulating as a way to regulate without relying on caregivers. A third strategy is to become a caregiver herself as a child, to start to take care of the parent to restore the parent to a sense of um, where the child feels once again, a confidence that the parent will pay attention and will not be overwhelmed with stress. The fourth is people-pleasing demeanors, which are essentially, Freud called them reaction, reaction formation, which is to repress our primary emotions that we're feeling and just present a side of us that seems pleasant, nice, agreeable, that uh, smiles and tries to make other people feel uh, welcome and approved of. And these are the ways we master uh, emotional needs that are inconvenient. And the fifth uh, is the uh, worrier and the perfectionist who completely compensates for reckless caregivers by seeking control of situations and tries to manage the family through being in a sense like the one who's making the decisions. And then there's other strategies like the procrastinator installer who realizes that the best way to get needs met is to not express them until they, finally the environment seems welcoming. So I hope something in there sounds familiar. If not, uh, just hang in there. Uh, <laughs> maybe something the next talk will relate to. Um, so over thousands and thousands of repetitions where we deny our needs, we become self-reliant, we become chronic caregivers, chronically people-pleasing, uh, abandoning our core self and emotions where we, be, we learn to uh, worry and 
constantly try to be the one who figures out what could go wrong. Over the thousands of repetitions, these behaviors become fast automatic routines, essentially what we call ingrained behaviors. What does that mean? Well, to be clinical about it, there's a part of the brain that's pre-conscious known as your striatum. We all have one. And the job of the striatum is to develop those um, automatic routines that you do day in and day out without thinking. You just start doing that. You wake up, you, without realizing it, you put on maybe shoes or socks, you walk downstairs, you maybe then immediately go to the bathroom, you might brush your teeth, you might then have a routine where you go make toast or have coffee. And all of these are automatic ingrained routines. You start doing them even before you have a thought of doing them. And the striatum is largely pre-conscious and it has fast myelinated. Myelinated means neural connections that are sealed and very efficient. They work like lightning. So any signal from the striatum forward projecting to the frontal lobe or to the basal ganglia, we just start doing these routines before we even realize we're doing it. Speaking as a, somebody who's been in recovery from alcoholism for 29 years now, but there was a time in my life where the moment any uncomfortable feeling occurred in me before I even realized it, I was picking up an alcoholic beverage. There was no free will. There was no decision. It was just a fast, automatically ingrained behavior. And so a lot of these behaviors, these survival routines are fast and automatic. For example, the person who shuts down, who's on a romantic date, and the person they're on a date with, they might like them, but the person suddenly that they're on the date with says something inappropriate or makes an, a kind of sexual advance that's uncalled for given how little time they've spent together. And the person on the receiving end, rather than saying, no, hold on, this is far too soon, this is inappropriate, they lose their voice. They literally go into an immobilized kind of quasi-freeze state. That's a fast ingrained survival behavior that's initiated pre-consciously. Likewise, the person who's with a boss who starts piling on work that they can't do, and instead of speaking up, they say, uh, they find themselves uh, complimenting or saying approving things to their boss, even though it's the last thing in the world they feel. Those people-pleasing behaviors are, again, fast, automatic. It might seem to someone else who's looking at us while we're engaged in these behaviors that there's some free will in there, but there isn't. These are initiated unless we learn to override them before we know it, we'll be in these survival behaviors. These routines are activated in pretty much all the challenging social situations. They start out in our interactions with our caregivers but then over time, this is how we manage when we're in peer relationships in schoolyards and there's a bully or someone who's really cool and we want to be liked by them. And they say, hey, we're going to go throw eggs at people or whatever. And you might not want to do that, 
But before you know it, you're saying, yes, you're egging it on because the desperation, the tension of saying no, the desperate need to be part of a community overrides our ability to have any free will in that setting. So not only in peer relationships, but in the way we relate to authority and teachers. And then they crop up in how we relate when we're on dates. We romantic situations where we abandon ourselves and we don't express how we're feeling in different situations. And we enact behaviors like we start taking care of or trying to be overly attentive to the needs of someone else, or we um, become, uh, in, we shut down or don't state our needs automatically. Then over time, these survival routines become, and here's in many ways the most tragic outcome, is these routines started to make us likable to our caregivers. So eventually these are the routines that we enact at work whenever there's any stress in a workplace. Gone is the ability at times to simply say, no, that's too much. I can't take on any more on my plate or I don't have enough expertise. I need some uh, help doing this or I'm overwhelmed. I need a day off. The ability to set boundaries to uh, ask for help, all of that, which feels, uh, which reminds us of the vulnerable parts of our childhood goes out the window. And before we know it, we are making ourselves as pleasant as possible and agreeing to things that are not in our long-term interest. So the, again, these survival strategies look great to employers. And in fact, if you look at job notices, they very often say or ask for skills that if you take a step back are terrible. Mm -hmm. We want someone who can handle stress, who can multitask, who can be a self-starter, who, you know, will jump in and be efficient from day one. That's not describing a human being. That's mm -hmm. describing a robot. And so, but, you know, uh, these survival behaviors create the impression that we are essentially without needs, without emotions, without difficult uh, feelings that need to be conveyed. So I met, fascinatingly, I'm not gonna go to uh, identify this person, but I met a while ago, uh, an individual whose father, when she grew up, was a artist who was extremely addicted to heroin and was a, basically an adult baby that she had to care give. And then this person in her adult life wound up being a, a producer of um, entertainment. And her specialty was working with the most difficult asinine narcissistic directors imaginable because her skill at caregiving narcissists and uh, essentially adult babies made her likable and gave her the career. And that's tragic because it makes our entire life a repetition compulsion of the traumas of our childhood, or at least the emotionally wounding parts of our childhood. So again, these parts, 
they look really good to others and they're encouraged by others. No one will ever shame you for being a people pleaser. It's just no one will ever say, stop, hey, you're being too nice and too agreeable. Um, at the expense of other needs and behaviors, though, these routines are developed. Uh, the more we rely on these behaviors, our ability to creatively express ourselves, to be free, to be silly, and to, to express parts of ourselves that are not professional and locked down, that look good, begin to atrophy. Um, our ability to ask for help and even to be taken care of by other people atrophies. Our ability, our sense of agency in the world, our sense of respect, our sense that we can grow and develop new skills and new ways of dealing with stress begins to fall apart because these impulses become so fast and so automatic and so just ingrained through repetition that we can't get out of them. And most importantly is that ability to simply say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm sad, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm, I'm not having a good time. I need, I need to have an afternoon off or I'm just feeling like I can't handle this alone. Uh, starts to feel so awkward because we've abandoned that mm -hmm. so vital, necessary uh, ability to express our internal states to others for regulation, acknowledgement. And then those parts of ourselves that are awkward feel terminally unique and isolated, and we no longer feel connected with the rest of the human race. So when we're limited by survival behaviors, eventually um, a second set of survival behaviors come in. The first is the, the, those strategies that look good, the perfectionist, the person who worries all the time, to, the, the person who is pleasing, the person who's completely self-reliant and never asks for help and never uh, asks for anything. But nobody can live in those behaviors all the time. So when we go home and we're alone and we're no longer in any social environment, then a second set of routines are developed to numb all those painful feelings that we've been compartmentalizing and keeping at bay. The loneliness, the sadness, the anger, the grief, the shame, the frustration, the emptiness. When those feelings start to return, what Freud called the return of the repressed, Buddha had a name for them called anusayas, the latent feelings start to come back then what happens is we seek anything to numb. So we go from these pleasing behaviors socially to in private, uh, alcohol, weed, food, porn, sex, binging on TV, um, shopping addictively, or if those fail, some people who have had, who are really holding deeply exiled, wounded parts of real shame might self-harm or develop fantasy bonds with completely emotionally unavailable people as a compensation for the loneliness they feel in life. So now what we have is a twofold act. We have the social self that's performative and completely 
abandons and and tries to master uh, awkward emotions by becoming as either uh, compliant, pleasing, or self-reliant as possible. And then we have a second set that comes out in private where people just numb the feelings that start to reemerge. This, it's called signal anxiety, if you want the cl clinical term. When people have repressed emotions that they haven't expressed to others, when they start to return, the sense that awkward emotions are starting to surface creates this anxiety that will be abandoned, rejected, will be unlovable. It, this part that my anger, my sadness, my grief might take over me. I'll never be liked by anybody ever again. This understandably causes anxiety, which in time then creates the need to drink, uh, binge eat, and so forth. So these processes are finally, to get to the, the final, I hope I've sold you on why over-relying on these are not a good idea, but just to go the extra mile, these processes of going from uh, survival strategies to numbing behaviors and back and forth and back and forth are sustained by underlying emotional beliefs about oneself and other, which are called internal working models. These underlying beliefs naturalize and justify the fact that we've over-relied on these strategies and, and make it so that we feel comfortable with the fact that at work, we're always just putting aside our, our feelings and performing pleasant uh, behaviors. And then at home, we're sitting in front of a TV in our, our pajamas eating ice cream for hours. Um, so some of the uh, underlying emotional beliefs are one, other people cannot be relied on for emotional support. We develop these beliefs to justify and naturalize these strategies for living. Two, I'm terminally unique. Others will not understand what I'm feeling. So trying to express it is a waste of time. Three, other, other people's needs are more important than my needs. My needs are somehow shameful and I should just worry about meeting other people's needs. And finally, expressing difficult emotions and challenging needs invariably leads to shame and abandonment. So I better not do it. So, those are the underlying emotional beliefs. We're not, nobody ever walks around stating their emotional beliefs, but they're there guiding, naturalizing, justifying. They're an underlie to how we act. So it's a shame because our minds are naturally multifarious, which when a mind has different strategies, different abilities, uh, it not only will sometimes be a caregiver or somebody who's amicable and pleasant or someone who's um, extremely uh, just sh shuts down and just keeps a stiff upper lip or somebody who's self-reliant. We're not always one thing. Sometimes we're silly, exploratory. Sometimes we're vulnerable. Sometimes we're uh, willing to ask for help and learn something new. But all of those natural needs fall to the wayside. Um, in therapies like Richard Schwartz's internal family systems, 
Jeffrey Young's schema therapies, uh, coherence therapy by Bruce Ecker, and emotion-focused therapies by Leslie Greenberg. These are an array of therapies that all focus on these exact same insights to what, why people go to therapy, why people struggle. And in all of these therapies, what they do is develop an inner awareness practice that separates our true self from these survival strategies. And this true self is compassionate, is loving, and is willing to say to these parts of ourself that just jump up and immediately take charge, they're willing to say, hold on, this time on a date, I'm not just going to be go along with everything. I'm going to state my needs or I'm not just going to be pleasant. I'm going to also take my time. This time in a job interview, I'm not going to just say yes. If they offer me to a job, I'm going to stop. I'm going to tell them, let me think about it. I'm going to state my needs. So these therapies develop this separate self that can stand back from all of our impulses and say, not this time. I'm going to try something else. And in therapy, the way it's done is the therapist at first stands in for the compassionate self and shows the client, this is how a compassionate self would respond. It wouldn't, it wouldn't say to a sibling that's constantly attacking us and criticizing us. It wouldn't try to manage that, that sibling's feelings. It would set boundaries. If we had a compassion itself, it would say, hey, that's too much. If you can't lay off, I need a break. So the therapist generally creates an ex example of what a compassionate inner self would be like. And then we see that and we internalize it and then we have it. So that's the um, interpersonal way. The Dharma, the Buddhist teachings is built on the same observations. The mind is not considered to be a fixed entity but made up of a wide array of changing parts and impulses and schemas. And the Buddha had a million names for these different parts that sometimes take control. And the Buddha too said that the problem is when one chetasika or mind state takes complete control at the expense of others, takes on the burden of our survival at the expense of all the other parts, even the Buddha and the wings to awakening and in the suttas on achieving balance, the uh, seven factors, he basically says that if you rely on anything, even seeking tranquility and calm at times when you need to rise up and take an action or push back at the, and when someone's being aggressive, even those seemingly beautiful behaviors, if they get locked in, can become deeply maladaptive. So in one practice, the Buddha called Yunisa Manasikara, he taught the most important thing is when we find these tendencies in ourselves that we've over relied on to survive, the first thing is not to shame them, to not reject them, to not treat them like they're a mistake because these are protective. They didn't develop uh, for the fun of it, they developed in childhood as ways to survive when we felt emotionally alone and not taken care of. So our 
these the first thing is to what the Buddha called appreciate the allure of the coping strategy, understand it, and then reassure it that there's another way. So the key is to develop an awareness that allows us to act, access and to, in essence, what we would call talk to these parts of ourselves to get a, to separate our awareness from these uh, survival strategies that we've enacted. When we become so, there's a clinical term known as fusing. When we've relied on one strategy for too long, we begin to identify with it and it becomes us. You know, if you ask somebody who's been too reliant on uh, being self-reliant and perfectionist, they'll say proudly, I'm a perfectionist. I'm someone who doesn't show work until it's absolutely, you know, my proudest moment. And they'll literally, that's who they are. They become a survival strategy. They're no longer made up of different parts. They are now rigidly fused and identifying with it. So the first key is to disidentify with these coping strategies to understand them, to use them when they're appropriate, but to not fall into the automatic triggering of them. So how do we do that? Well, there's two ways, and we're going to do it now in the meditation. One way, the Buddha said, is to catch the impulses when they're just feelings of discomfort. Because before any of these strategies being suddenly shutting down, or keeping a step up or lip, not stating our needs, being pleasant, being a perfectionist, caregiving someone else. Before these behaviors kick in, there's always a physiological state in your body that says, I'm uncomfortable, I'm vulnerable, I don't feel safe right now. And if you can catch it at that affect state, what some people call somatic markers, these feelings precede the behavior. The behavior precedes our thinking. So the way is to just become aware of what we're experiencing. And when you start to catch that feeling of your stomach tensing, your breath becoming short, your shoulders locking, your throat tightening, that signal we're about to abandon ourselves, then we pay attention to it we relax the body, we soften the belly, we lean back, we put ourselves in a, a physical body state that is not under threat. So when you're not, your body's not under a threat or vulnerable state, the fast automatic behaviors don't automatically kick in. You have a choice, but you have to keep your body feeling safe. The second way is to visualize these parts and to talk to them in a meditation, literally visualize the part of you that whenever people uh, dump on you, never says, <laughs> hold on, I'm too overwhelmed. I can't just always take care of your needs. I need to be able to express how I'm feeling or I've have, have been having a bad day. I need a little care. I just need to have a little space to talk to the part that immediately abandons and just says, look, I understand you were there, you developed to help me survive in childhood. And I've relied on you all my life. 
and I appreciate all you've done for me, but now I humbly request that you step aside and you allow other parts, the parts that need to express themselves to come out. And when we do this practice, to be sure, very often we have to be willing to, once we put aside those managers, we have to be willing to feel those, that all those old difficult emotions that we've rep- suppressed and repressed for so long, the emptiness, the poor shame, the loneliness, the hopelessness that we'll ever find love or whatever. We have to be willing to feel them and create a safe haven because the more we show ourselves that we can be with those feelings, the less those fast coping strategies will kick in. I think that's enough. Uh, Hopefully something in there is worth reflecting on. Um, But now we're going to do a practice where we do both, where we practice. uh, We'll visualize a scenario where we frequently abandon ourselves. We'll first start to watch for the somatic feelings that precede those fast coping strategies, and we'll learn to downregulate them. And then we'll also practice talking to one of the parts that have have become overburdened with survival. So find a really comfortable seated position. And let's just first Put aside all the thoughts that maybe have been activated by the talk or maybe just plans for what we're going to do after the gathering or things that happened earlier today. And just bring your awareness into your body. And first, just find a really comfortable sensation in your body, a a part of your body that feels pleasant. It could be the palms of your hands. It could be the, your eyes, if they feel not too pressured, it could be an area in your feet. If some area could become soothing, breathe into it. Just imagine each in-breath relaxing. So I like to use my eyes sometimes and just imagine what it would be like with the in-breath if I brought in the soothing, warm awareness to the eyes. And then with each out breath, I'm relaxing around the eyes and spreading any ease through areas in the body adjacent.
And for some, if you want to find the energy of the breath, there's different ways to do that. You can just feel the breath entering the tip of the nose, or you could feel it as energy in your body moving up from the belly to the chest as you breathe in, and then this sense of release with the exhalation and the energy moving back down the torso. So the breath feels like waves coming to shore and then receding. And try to make the breath conducive to feeling comfortable. So for some, if you're feeling a little anxious, the attention is jumping, thoughts are pulling your attention away, try to make your exhalations as long and smooth as possible. And feel as if while you're riding on the sensations moving up and down. Feel the breath like waves of energy coming and going. On the other hand, if you're tired, sleepy, dozing off, focus on bringing the in-breath with as much oxygen, like really full inhalations. If you're really falling asleep, you can open one eye while you breathe in and then close it as you breathe out.
every time your attention is snagged by an image or a thought or a memory or a plan, don't worry about it. Don't get frustrated. It's totally okay. The practice is to just bring your awareness back Make it all as non-judgmental and friendly. <clears throat> if your attention wanders a hundred times in your meditation, you bring it back a hundred times. Well, a hundred times in your meditation, you've experienced a small version of awakening where you detach from intrusive thoughts and brought your awareness back to the present. Try to make the breath, the belly as soft as possible, allowing the shoulders to drop away from the ears. If you like, gently pull back the shoulders so you open up the chest to make it really spacious for breathing. And really allow yourself to fall into the cushion or the chair you're sitting on. And if you're capable of visualizing a friend that you associate with safety, attention, someone who's been interested in how you feel that you don't have to put too much effort to keep their interest, someone who shows up. Just bring them to mind. Just have them in your, have a mental image of them smiling back at you. If you can visualize people. If you can't think of anyone, just have a figure of someone who you, associate compassion, care, 
with and just imagine them expressing a soothing, interested facial expression. And if you can't visualize them, just whisper their name in your mind. So hopefully your body is starting to feel pretty relaxed. Your belly is soft. The energy is moving up and down through your torso. You're not contracting or clenching your jaw. Just everything is in a good, pleasant, neutral state. And then we're going to introduce into this now an image of a time where you find that some behavior kicks in and takes control and has you agreeing to things that lead to suffering or disappointment or frustration in the long term. It's just a part of you that tries to protect yourself by making yourself as agreeable and pleasing or at least as not difficult as possible. It could be a situation where you're on a date, you're talking with a teacher or someone who supervises you at work or a parent or a friend that's challenging.
and see if you can catch in your body the physiological signs of stress that precede. What happens in our bodies that signal we no longer feel safe? It's kind of like what's called a tell. A tell is something that lets us know that something's about to happen. What happens in your body right before For me, it's almost invariably my stomach tightens and I start to lean forward. I find myself like my head literally moving in front of my torso trying to manage someone. So if I can pull my head back and soften my belly and drop my shoulders and bring myself back to a state of safety, This practice, soothing that physiological tension that develops, that signals we're about to fall into that shutting down, fleeing, giving up. the feeling that precedes not being able to state our needs. And then for a related practice, see if you can visualize yourself as a child at any age that spontaneously comes to mind. But this is the period in your life where you first, where you felt most alone, most vulnerable, most overwhelmed, or just at a time where you didn't feel particularly an important part of your family. And this child is the, represents that coping strategy, that survival strategy, that learned to abandon herself or himself. And if you can visualize this, just Assure it that you appreciate all it's tried to do.
but also signal I've got it. I can handle it. I don't need you to step in. I'll still need you at times, but I need to decide. And finally, if you can visualize a part or an impulse or something that you haven't relied on enough to keep yourself authentic in all your interpersonal interactions, what would that be? See if you can develop a body state that would give you the confidence to try something new. So thanks for listening and for your practice.